0: If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. The Gospel of John, chapter 16, we'll read together verses 16 through 33 for our consideration of God's Word this morning. It's glorious to sing with you. It's glorious to sing that song with you. And I, I hope it's in your minds that. One day, uh, the trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend, and we will all see Him and all meet with Him and stand before Him. And that could be when we just wake up on a Saturday morning with no expectation of anything spectacular happening that day. Uh, That could be while you're picking up your groceries at Publix. That could be in the next 15 minutes. But the Lord is coming back, He will descend, and we'll all meet Him. Let's read together this morning, John 16, verses 16 through 33. Follow along as I read. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of His disciples said to one another, what is this that He says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? and because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does He mean by a little while? We do not know what He is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask Him, so He said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see Me, and again a little while and you will see Me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice." You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming... Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave Me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with Me. I have said these things to you, that in Me you may have peace in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." We come this morning in our regular exposition of John's gospel to uh, what is the end formally of what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. In the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, covers the first three to three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's out and about among the crowds. He has various dialogue with various individuals like Nicodemus and the woman at the well. He engages in dialogue and debate with the religious leaders of the day. But that all changes. The chronology slows down when you get to the upper room, which is John 13, verse 1, Uh, where at that point, we're in the final few days of Jesus' life and the events that would take place at His resurrection. And there in the upper room, Jesus is there with His intimates. The doors are closed. And at this point in the upper room, there's only believers in the room. Uh, There's only disciples of Jesus, uh, men who have followed the Lord Jesus, I suppose, unless, of course, there was maybe a servant on hand or something like that. But the upper room discourse Fundamentally, is Jesus speaking to His disciples about discipleship, and He's speaking to them specifically about the situation they would soon find themselves in, Uh, uh, the situation in which their Savior, their Lord, their God, would be gone, would be physically absent from them. He is anticipating going to the cross. He's anticipating rising from the dead. Then after that, ascending to the right hand of His Father, and it's from that vantage point that He'll give the Holy Spirit. And if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've talked a great deal about the Holy Spirit's ministry and what He will do uh, in the context of the Lord Jesus' physical absence from His disciples. Well, today we come to the end of the, the, the discourse, if you will. Chapter 17 is often included as part of the Upper Room Discourse. That's where Jesus prays to His Father, what's popularly known as the high priestly prayer. It's a glorious passage, and I want to encourage you. We're going to take a break from this series. We have a couple of sermons surrounding Christmas and Advent, but be reading John 17 and reflecting on that passage. But now the discussion with the disciples is coming to a close, and we're on the eve of Jesus' death. These are the final words He says to His disciples. And what we detect as we read the passage is that the disciples are sorrowful. They're confused, they're to some degree broken, and they're troubled by the things they're hearing their Lord say to them about His imminent departure. And in these verses in particular, we we see very clearly that so much about what's going to happen over the next few hours is still obscure and unclear to these disciples. They do not understand what's going on. Well. We are standing in 2019 on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, and we're readers of John's completed gospel. And so I don't want us to read this text from the vantage point of the disciples' confusion over the things that Jesus is talking about. We, we read from the vantage point of, of what they'll say in English classes is the vantage point of omniscience. We, we know what's going on in the hearts and minds of these disciples. We're given insight into what's going on in Jesus' heart and mind, and we know the end of the story. We know where this narrative is going. So I want to to preach this text this morning from the vantage point of one who knows precisely what Jesus is talking about, even though the events that Jesus is talking about in these verses are unclear to those disciples who are sitting at table with the Lord Jesus there. And, And what we'll find is that the events, the The historic events that Jesus is talking about uh, are the core events making up the gospel message itself. So, it is of the most urgent importance that we understand what our Lord Jesus is saying to us. So, I want to unfold the narrative this morning under four main headings. The first heading is this. Jesus announces His impending death and subsequent resurrection. Jesus announces His impending death and His subsequent resurrection, and I believe this is what He's talking about, what He has in His mind in verse 16. If you would look at that verse again, He says, A little while, and you will see Me no longer. Again, a little while, and you will see Me. A most significant interpretive question, probably the most important interpretive question in these verses is to understand what Jesus means by that phrase, a little while. What does He have in His mind specifically, there's going to be this little while where they're going to continue with Jesus, and then He's going to be gone, and then there's going to be another little while, He'll be gone during that little while, and then He'll come back. What is it that Jesus has in mind? Well, some commentators have suggested that this is a reference to Jesus' ascension, a back to the Father, a little while, and then He's going to ascend, and then another little while, and we're currently living in that little while, and then Jesus will come again that is certainly not what Jesus is talking about. That is not at all what Jesus is conveying in this passage. Jesus is actually referring to the immediate events of His death and resurrection. Like a little while, literally less than 24 hours, and you're not going to see me. I'm going to be in the grave, and you're going to scatter and weep and lament. But then it's only a little while after that and I'm going to rise again within a matter of probably less than 48 hours. I'm going to rise, and you will see me, and you will have joy, and no one will take your joy away from you. I think that's clear from some of the explicit statements that Jesus makes in the passage. I think it's clear from the subsequent events that play out in John's gospel. I think one of the clearest indications that that's what Jesus is talking about is His reference in this passage in verse 32 to uh, the hour that has come, or His hour that has come. Again, if you've been with us in our series on John, we've seen Jesus make reference, haven't we, to His fateful hour. In John 1-12, through those first three to three and a half years of His earthly ministry, He's always looking ahead to the hour that's to come. Something climactic is out there in the future. There's some great task that Jesus has been given to accomplish, and He's always saying, My hour has not yet come, or or, My hour is coming, or it's always forward-looking. But then when we get to the upper room where the chronology slows down, as it were, Jesus opens that upper room discourse, John 13, verse 1, by saying, or excuse me, John writes, knowing that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That's the start of the discourse. And then at the end of the discourse, in chapter 16, it ends again with this reference to the hour. In chapter 16, verse 32, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his home and will leave me alone. The fateful hour, the great mission, the great task that the Father had given to His Son to accomplish, the great climax of the gospel is now upon Christ and upon these disciples, and all that stands between Jesus and His bloody death on the cross under the wrath of God for the forgiveness of sins is a little while, and He will soon be upon the cross. So when Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me, He is talking about nothing other than the events of the gospel itself. The great climax has come. Well, how do the disciples respond to the words Jesus says? This a somewhat cryptic statement in verse 16. They're completely confused. Uh, It's totally lost on them uh, what Jesus is talking about. And even later in the passage, when when they uh, express perhaps understanding Jesus, it's feigned understanding. They really do not understand what it is the Lord is referring to. Please look at verse 17. So some of His disciples said to one another, what is it excuse me, what is this that He says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does He mean by a little while? We do not know what He is talking about. They're plainly confused. And they will be confused until the resurrection. It's evident all the way up to Jesus' death that none of His disciples and none of the Jews had any expectation that Jesus would die. There was not a a soul in Jerusalem that expected that Jesus was going to die. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of David who's supposed to reign on His Father's throne forever, and Messiahs don't die. The, the, The disciples' framework for what the Christ would do doesn't include going to the cross and suffering a painful and agonizing and humiliating death at the hands of men. just not what Messiahs do. They had no expectation that this is where the plan was going. But Jesus has already been telling them about His departure. He's been clear with them, this is going to happen. I am going to depart from you. We saw in John 12, speaking explicitly of His death, He said to them, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. But if it dies, it does bear much fruit. He's been telling them about His Hour that is to come again and again. But on the eve of Jesus' death, within 24 hours of his darkest hour, the disciples are still entirely confused and entirely unprepared for what's about to take place. Nonetheless, this is Jesus' word to them about his impending death and subsequent resurrection. A little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Now consider with me, secondly, is the announcement about his death and resurrection, albeit somewhat cryptically. Number two, Jesus predicts sorrow at his death. Jesus predicts sorrow at his death. So understanding the actual events that lie behind Jesus' words here, we can appreciate what Jesus says now about his death, particularly how the disciples will respond to this event, to the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. And what we read a number of times in these verses is that Jesus' death is going to create the most acute anguish and sorrow and despair for the disciples. He says, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament But the world will rejoice. That's not like the world will rejoice because a Savior has come or something like that. It means the world, the created order and act of rebellion against God is going to rejoice that they have put the Lord to death. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, the world will rejoice, you will be sorrowful. In verse 21, He compares it to the pain and sorrow of going through labor. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Uh, Now, even today, the the birth experience, the labor experience can be quite traumatic. Uh, It can uh, bring a great deal of anxiety and anguish, all the more so in those days. Uh, To have a child was uh, a severely life-threatening experience, not only for the mother but for the child. The vast majority of children did die in childbirth, and many women died in childbirth. And the, the labor of a child was an hour of extreme anxiety. What's going to happen? What's going to become of of the mother or the child? What's going to happen in this situation? And there's anguish and there's anxiety and there's pain and there's labor. And that's the analogy Jesus uses to describe what the experience of these disciples is going to be. Pain, anxiety, anguish, an uncertain outcome, the threat of loss, the threat of great sorrow uh, at the death of one they love so much. It will be an hour of trauma for them. Verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Already the Lord has predicted Peter's denial. Pastor Ben preached on that subject some weeks ago. He's already predicted Peter's going to deny the Lord, and here he says that the disciples, all of them, will flee and will abandon Him, and then we will see that at the cross itself, none of the disciples are there save the apostle John, which I find a most striking and astounding fact. The hour has come, the Lord is dying for their sins, and none of them except John is there. Isn't that extraordinary? They'd been with Him for all these years. They devoted their lives to Him. They were following their Messiah. And the great task, the great mission is being fulfilled. The great hour has come. And where are the disciples? And it's interesting. We'll see them reflect back on this event with such gladness, such joy later on in the New Testament. they reflect back on this as the big event. But none of them except John were there. So, where are they? And what are they doing as the Lord Jesus is dying their sins. According to John 16, they're scattered. They're going to go each to their homes, they're probably sitting locked behind closed doors and we read that they're weeping and lamenting. They're in the most acute anguish and utter despair as their Lord is crucified and is gone from their sight and gone from their lives. These disciples are utterly shattered. A Peter, the rock, upon which Christ would build the church, utterly shattered, utterly devastated. A James and John, the sons of thunder, weeping and lamenting and cowering behind closed doors, afraid to even identify with the Lord. Well, Jesus here in John 16 is telling them before it happens. He says, this is what the next couple of days are going to be like for you. You will abandon me, some of you will deny me, you will be scattered, and you will experience utter despair. Brothers, your deepest, darkest night of the soul is upon you." And that's what's stated in our passage in just a little while. This is going to befall these men. He predicts sorrow at his death. Before I move on from this point to my third heading, I just want to observe a few things here for our benefit that we can see in what Jesus is saying to his disciples here about the sorrow and the failure and the uh, devastation they will experience at his death. Three things in particular. Number one, observe, you can believe in Jesus, walk with Jesus, be strongly committed to Jesus. And these disciples were. They had left all to follow Jesus when no one else would. You can believe in Jesus, walk with Jesus, be committed to Jesus, and still experience sorrow and doubt and failure. Don't look down your nose at these disciples, how pathetic, how puny these men are in the face of adversity. This is us. This is all of us. We should see in these men, in their fear and their doubt and in their failure and in their sin, we should see ourselves. Their darkest hour came and they were shattered. And I know there's much that's unique about their situation. I know there's much that's peculiar about what they're going through, but I want us to appreciate the very simple point that even strong believers, people completely committed to the Lord Jesus, uh, can break down and experience great failure under the right circumstances. We see in ourselves, or in these disciples, we see ourselves. Second thing I'd just like you to note briefly, note that Jesus knew their weakness and He knew that they would fail, and He knew this beforehand. He knows your weaknesses too, and He knows every failure before it happens. And though these disciples failed Him, He was prepared to receive them back. Jesus is never surprised by the failure of His people, never surprised. He foretold Peter's denial, He told these men, "You're going to scatter, you're going to abandon me, you're going to cower behind closed doors and weep and lament. Their greatest hour of failure was upon them, And Jesus knew it beforehand. It is a wonderful and profound discovery to realize in your hour of abominable failure, uh, your hour of of failing your Lord in a most monumental way. It's a wonderful discovery when you realize that He knew all about it before He saved you. He knew all about it. And He saved you nonetheless. He's not surprised by your weaknesses. He's not surprised by our failures. He's not surprised by our sins, even in the most monumental and mammoth sort of way. Jesus is not disillusioned with us in the way we are so often disillusioned with ourselves and one another. It's very common in, in young couples when they, they marry, you know, or, or even before that you're dating, you're engaged, you want to put your best foot forward, right? That first date, you set the music just right in the car, you wear your best clothes, you pick the best restaurant, and, and, and you want to put your best foot forward. And, and the fear that some couples have actually moving toward the wedding day is, is what will my bride-to-be, my groom-to-be, what will they think of me when they, when they see me every day, when they see the good, the bad, and the ugly? Will they be disillusioned with me? And people will have anxiety over this. And what's very sad is sometimes in the early days of marriage, couples will struggle greatly with this the feeling of being disillusioned with with their spouse and not knowing how to think about that and to cope with that. And in, in many marriages that persists. That factor is not allowed to enter the equation in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. He's never disillusioned. He set His love on these men. He he intends to complete the work that He's begun in them. All that the Father gives to me, He says will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I'll never cast him out, even if they abandon me, even if the hour comes when they deny me, even if the hour comes when they're hiding behind closed doors and will refuse to stand with me. He knew it all before it happened, and He knows for us what our worst days will be, and He loves us still. Third brief observation. Jesus sympathizes with the sorrowful and he comforts them. His immediate concern when he tells them, he reveals to them, you're going to be sorrowful, you're going to weep and lament, you're going to be divided, you're going to scatter, is not to stick their noses in it and to say, can you believe what's going to become of you? Just look at how monumental this failure is going to be. Almost as soon as the words are out of his mouth, as he predicts their failure and their despair, immediately he comes with words of comfort. Take heart, brothers. I've overcome the world. And, and, and joy is coming. There's going to come a day It's going to feel so oppressive and traumatic and hard and discouraging in those hours when you can't see me, either with your eyes or with the eyes of your heart. But think upon the joy that's to come. He wants to comfort them immediately. And he's that way with us, even in the context of our failures. He's sympathetic to us, and he moves very quickly to comfort those who are in need. All right, let me move now to my third heading. We've seen, number one, Jesus announces his impending death, subsequent resurrection. Number two, Jesus predicts sorrow at his death. Now consider with me, thirdly, Jesus promises joy at the resurrection. Jesus promises joy at the resurrection. Look with me at verses 20 through 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Their sorrow will turn into joy. They will go from the night of deepest darkness to the morning of their greatest joy. Everything changes. We're going to see this in chapter 20. Uh, When Jesus is risen, John and Peter first enter that empty tomb. And it says they saw and believed. And it says for, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he would rise again. It all changes for them at that moment. What was obscure, what was so negative and so traumatic and so discouraging. There's a whole shift in perspective when they see that empty tomb. Their sorrow will turn to joy. Now this may be reading a little too much into the passage. I don't think it is. But you see it's not just that they will go from a place of sorrow to a place of joy. But their sorrow actually will turn into joy. The very thing that was a cause for sorrow will become the cause for rejoicing. The labor brings about the baby. Uh, The death brings about the resurrection. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here with the analogy of childbirth, how you reflect back on those hours that that, that birthed that baby, that produced uh, that baby. Your perspective on all the anxiety and anguish of those hours changes once you hold that little baby in your arms. I was talking to a, a friend of ours. Uh, they had had uh, three children, I suppose, and they were going to have their fourth, and we were talking to them at dinner, and uh, the, the wife had previously had Uh, three hospital births, she had an epidural and things like that, and um, now she wanted to do a natural birth. That was was what she wanted to do. And I'm aware, ladies, in the world of birth and labor and things like that, lots of opinions, lots of perspectives, pros and cons to different kinds of ways of having a baby, I know almost nothing about that, Uh, but I find it interesting. I find it interesting. When I talk to women, I feel like more women are pursuing uh, natural birth nowadays, which I'm not at all negative about, but I just find it fascinating. Uh, Because if I were in their shoes, um, I'd be looking for that epidural like as quickly as possible. We've had two babies and um, uh, we we had them in the hospital and there was an epidural and um, I, I wanted to make the, what do they call them, the anesthesiologist? Uh, he's now godparents to my children. (laughs) Because (laughs) all the anxiety and all the tension that was there in the room and watching my bride go through all this pain, and here comes the epidural, and just changes everything altogether. But that said, I I was talking to this friend of ours, and and she says, I I think I want to do a natural birth. And I said, I'm just interested. Why why do you want to do that? And um, she talked to me. She said, well, you know, it is painful, certainly. And this was her phraseology said, but it's a productive pain. It's a productive pain. This pain is is bringing something about. This hurt, this sorrow, this pain is producing a human life and that stimulates you and that helps you persevere through it all, and she didn't reference John 16, but she could have. It's a productive pain. Once you hold the baby in your arms, you have that perspective on the pain. Once the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead, it utterly alters their perspective on his death. That thing that caused them so much pain, so much sorrow, so much anguish is now the cause for great joy, great boasting, great worship. That's what the apostle Paul says. Um, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. I, I guarantee you, in John 16, nobody would have boasted. In the idea of Jesus going to the cross. But after the resurrection, that's our boast now. Now that redemption has been accomplished, we look back on that event with a completely different perspective. Our sorrow is turned into joy. And this is what's so wonderful about the resurrection. It's not just that Christ rises from the dead and now the disciples have their Lord back. It's that in His rising, it meant that redemption was accomplished, that their sins were forgiven, And all of a sudden, they had a completely new interpretation on all of that sorrow. See, the resurrection is the interpretive key to the crucifixion. It's interesting. Have you ever thought about this, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, He still occupies a human body. He is still conditioned by the incarnation. And if you, like some of those disciples, were to see Him in His human body today, He would still have the holes in His hands. He would still have uh, the uh, gouge in His side, and that's what He says to Thomas in, in John 20. He says, Thomas, come over here, put your hands in the imprint of the wounds. Why is it that Jesus still has those wounds visible for all to see? Why is it further? That in the great apocalyptic vision that God gave to the apostle John later on after the writing of this gospel, he says, I saw between the throne and between the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is in glory. There's the lamb standing in the midst of it all as though he had been slain. Is it not because part of the glory of heaven will be to see in those wounds that we have been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus? Those wounds, that blood that would have utterly shattered and crushed the disciples at this point in time, now becomes the grounds for our worship and for our boasting. We see the Lamb standing as though He had been slain. We see those wounds in His hands and His feet and His side. And we say, crown Him. Crown Him the Lord of love. Behold, His hands and side, rich wounds, yet visible above, in beauty glorified. The wounds of our Savior in glory contribute to our worship, to His majesty and to His glory in the new heavens In the new earth. The disciples had no knowledge of this at this point. But after the resurrection, they could see this clearly. And we, as those who are on this side of the resurrection, can see this clearly. Their sorrow turned into joy. And I love what verse 22 says. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives to his people joy that cannot be taken away from them. The disciples, after the resurrection, have the awareness that they are in possession of the living, reigning, risen Lord, that their life is hid with Christ in God, and that they are the inheritors of everlasting life. And now, they're equipped to face the world, and to face opposition, to face persecution, because they have been bought by Christ and belong to Him, and their joy is now kept safe in a place where thieves cannot break in and steal. And that's the secret to the Christian life, that we as those who have the Lord Jesus and are the inheritors of eternal life in paradise forever with Him, we have joy that cannot be taken away from us. And make no mistake... Our joy is not a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It's not some impulse that makes us want to clap our hands in worship or something. Uh, Our joy is not pie in the sky religion. It's not, wow, being a Christian is just so much fun. The joy of the Christian is bound up in the fact that our sins are forgiven. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. We have the indwelling of God's Spirit and our risen Lord is returning for His bride and we will live with Him in heaven forever. That's the content of Christian joy. That's the content of Christian hope. We recite this often from the Heidelberg Catechism. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. He also watches over me, (laughs) In such a way that my hair can fall from my head without the glory or without the will of my Father who is in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation." That's the content of Christian joy. And, and for those of you who, who don't identify with Christ or Christianity, that's what I want you to hear in this sermon. We don't gather here. We don't worship here because Jesus just makes us feel so warm inside. It's not a happy, clappy, plastered on smile kind of joy. It's the sure confidence that we're the sons and daughters of God, that we belong to Jesus Christ the Lamb, and that we'll be with Him in glory forever. And perhaps the best thing about this joy is that no one can take it away from us. No one can take Jesus away from me. No one can take Jesus away from you if you're His. Not death nor life, not famine nor sword, not persecution. Nothing under heaven can take you away from Jesus. Young people, everything good in life can be taken away from you. Everything. I was 10 years old yesterday, I was 20 years old last night. Life goes by like this, and there is nothing in this world that can't be taken away from you, even, and maybe even especially, those things that appear so sure, those things that you. Set all of your heart and your life upon, it can all be taken away from you. And I just wanna say to somebody this morning, what will it profit a man or a woman or a boy or a girl if he gains the whole world but suffers the loss of his soul? But there's joy for you here if you'll have it, joy that can't be taken away. Fourthly and finally, fourthly and finally, Jesus announces His impending death, subsequent resurrection. He predicts sorrow at His death. He promises joy at the resurrection. Fourthly, and we'll be very brief here for the sake of time, Jesus pronounces victory over the world. Jesus pronounces victory over the world. We see this in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, or be of good cheer, I have overcome the world." Jesus, by going to the cross and rising from the grave, will demonstrate to His disciples that He has indeed overcome the world. And they have to know this, because as Zach so helpfully preached to us a couple of weeks ago, they're going to face opposition. They're going to be the object of the world's hatred, but Jesus says to them, now take heart, brothers." I've overcome the world. There is no force, no power in the universe that is too strong. There is, 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 is no individual or group that is just too daunting. I've overcome the world. And in your Savior and in your Lord are the resources to persevere in the context of opposition. So, so don't be discouraged, brothers. All power and authority is mine. Uh, Jesus is ruling and reigning over all, he has overcome the world and there is no force or power that escapes out from under the dominion of Christ. As one Christian theologian has said, there is not a square inch under heaven over which the Lord Jesus does not cry, mine. He says, I have power over all. And brothers, you don't need to fear. Your Savior, your Lord, is in complete control And I have victory over everything that would harass you and attack you and cause you distress and temptation and failure and heartache. I have overcome the world," Jesus says. Well, now I wish to draw to a close, and I want to do so with three brief words of application, three brief words of application. The first two are specifically to those here who uh, are Christians, those who are following the Lord Jesus, the first is this, and I cannot overstate the importance of this. Brother, sister, live like you have joy that can't be taken away from you. Live like you have joy that can't be taken away from you. We as Christians don't place our joy, our hope, our satisfaction in material things that can be taken away, or where thieves can break in and steal, or where moths can decompose. We don't live for things. We don't live for money. We store treasures in heaven. We don't even live for relationships, though they're so important and so necessary and so part of the essence of our lives. Brothers and sisters, don't live like what is most precious to you can be taken away at any moment. Live like what is most precious, what is most sure, what is most wonderful, what is the greatest cause of delight in your life, that it can never be taken away from you. I'm really concerned about this, if I'm just being transparent with you. The way in which Christian people receive a cancer diagnosis should be qualitatively different from those who are outside of Christ. Over here, you have one person who stands to lose everything by that cancer diagnosis all their possessions they can't take with them into the next life, they can't take their grandkids with them, no more vacations or holidays at the beach. They stand to lose everything by that diagnosis. And over here, you have someone for whom to live is Christ and to die is gain and to gain glory forever with the Lord Jesus. Shouldn't they hear that news differently? Now, I'm not saying we should be happy, clappy, and jump up and down about something like that. To get a cancer diagnosis is hard. It has implications that are sorrowful and difficult. But, but, but I'm just trying to illustrate the point that there's a way in which we could live like our health is the most important thing in the world, well, or like if I don't have enough money in retirement that, that, that it's all over or something like that. I think you should exercise and seek to steward your bodies. I think you should save for retirement, don't, don't hear me wrong. But I'm just saying there should be something different about the way Christian people live. There should be a difference in the way you talk to your kids about what matters in life. The the, the things literally you verbalize to your children and the things that you model to your children, do they say to them that mom and dad have joy that cannot be taken away from them? That our lives, our souls are hid with Christ. We are storing up treasures in heaven. Or does your life communicate to your children that their best things will be in this life? Brothers and sisters, live, live, your joy can't be taken away from you. Listen, aging is not the worst thing that can happen. To some people it is, but not to us, because we know as summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us. We're looking at the reward, we're looking at our hope, we're looking at our joy, and it changes the way that we live. Second point of application, first was to live like you have joy that can't be taken away. Number two, live like you belong to one who has overcome the world. And here I mean something different from that first application live from the vantage point of one who lives in all the safety and security, courage, power afforded to one who belongs to Christ, the one who has overcome the world. Listen, life is very hard. Life is daunting. Life is painful. The older I get, the more acutely I'm aware of that. Uh, There's a line in a movie I like a lot, life is pain, Uh, anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Life is exceedingly difficult. And there's so many forces that would, would, would seek to harm us, and would crush us and grind us to powder. So many burdens and pressures upon us and things in life, experiences in life, forces in life that are difficult for us. But I think Christ would want us to live like those who can find courage and solace and comfort in the knowledge that He has overcome the world. And He will not allow anything to come into our lives that will be fatal to our souls. And so I'm just saying, we don't need to be as tossed to and fro by the vicissitudes of life, by all that's uncertain, by all that's scary, by all that would would overwhelm us. We can live in a greater confidence that we belong to the Lord Jesus who has all power and all authority, and he has overcome that very thing that we are so afraid of. There's a part in Pilgrim's Progress, that great allegory that I I hope all of you will one day read, where Christian is walking along his journey, and here are two lions that are coming at him. And it says, But he could not see that the lions were chained, that they would not be allowed to come further than the chains would go. Well, Jesus is telling us that in this passage. Brothers, you're going to scatter. You're going to weep and lament. It's going to be so hard for you. But take heart. They're all on a leash. They're all bound. No harm will come to you that you cannot handle through the strength that I supply. Take heart, brothers, sisters. I've overcome the world. That's Jesus' word. To us. The third and final point of application is very specifically to anyone here who, who, who would say, I'm not a Christian. I wouldn't say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I have not placed my faith and trust in the person of Jesus. I've not seen the need to turn from my sin and to believe on Him and to embrace Him. And I'm here observing all of this, My word to you is this, you who are not Christians, regardless of whether Christianity is true or not, by the way, though gloriously it all is true, you who are not Christians have everything to lose. You have everything to lose. There's nothing in your life that you will not lose when you die. What does it that say? You can't attach a U-Haul to a hearse, right? What are you going to take with you into those final hours of your life, those hours that are coming for each and every one of us? I mean, you know this, right? Maybe this just needs to be said. It should be obvious everywhere around us. You and I are going to die. Let that sink in. It could be 30 minutes from now, 30 years from now, But but you're going to die. And what profit will it be to you if you gain everything in this life, but suffer the loss of your never-dying soul? My friend, in sincerest love, I want to hold out to you joy that cannot be taken away from you. I want to warn you that there is coming a day when all that is sacred to you, all that you hold dear will be taken away from you. But That if you have Christ, you have all. If you have Him, you have joy. If you have Him, you have hope and life. And and what's so wonderful about this is it's held out to everybody. It's not the secret possession of a few. It's for preachers like myself and Christians like those who are here, to go into the highways and byways and to compel people to come in. You're all invited to the feast. You're all invited to the banquet. You can all come and have joy that cannot be taken away from you. But you must come to the Lord Jesus. You must come to God, turning away from your sins, forsaking sinful pleasure, turning to Christ saying, I believe on Him. My trust and my hope and my faith is in Him, and I'm going to follow Him all of my days. That's the summons of the gospel. And the good news is that for every soul that comes to Jesus in repentance and faith, they will be saved. And, And your inheritance will be joy that cannot be taken away from you. It's my prayer that each one of us would partake of that joy. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the reminders are daily surrounding us that everything in this life is so unsteady and so unsure, and I'm aware that some of us feel that so acutely. Life can seem so uncertain, trials and difficulties and hardships can seem so great. We thank you that in the storm of this life, there is a place of shelter for those who would have it. We thank you that in Jesus we can have everything, everything that the world could not give us. We thank you that in Jesus we can have joy and we can have life, we can have hope for the world to come. We pray, Father, that you would awaken our minds and our hearts to these things urgent and eternal realities, and that we would choose Christ, that we would find in him everlasting life, everlasting joy that no one can take away from us. We thank you that Jesus is ours, that we are his, and for all those who are his people, nothing can separate us from him. Cause us to live our lives with this prevailing awareness. Let us live, Father, as those who, who, whose joy cannot be taken from them. Let us live, Father, help us to live as those who belong to the one who has overcome the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.